Lord willing, this is going to be our final sermon, at least this, this go-around in the Lord's Prayer. I have to admit, when I first started preaching through it the turn of the year, at the new, start of the new year, my original plan was two sermons, that we do an introduction in the early part of Matthew 6, talking about where Jesus taught the disciples how not to pray, and then I thought, we'll do one sermon, an overview of the whole Lord's Prayer, and then we'll move on back to Revelation. And uh, over the course of time, uh, it just kind of worked out that uh, God put it on my heart to just slow down and go through the whole thing, and I hope it's been as edifying to you as it has been to me. It's been a pleasure to go through it and a, help, a helpful thing to me in my own prayer life. But we're going to look at the, the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, and you might have figured out by now that when we read the text of Matthew 6 in the ESV, that it's not the ending of the Lord's Prayer is not found there. And I don't know if you've, you've wondered about that, if you've had questions about that as we've gone through. Uh, I thought about just cheating and ducking, uh, ducking the topic altogether and going right back to Revelation and hoping no one asked. But I thought uh, we should look at the, the conclusion. I think it's edifying. And so I put on the back of your bulletins the text of the New American Standard, which includes it. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. So if you have uh, that, or if you have another Bible that includes it, I'll invite you, if you're able to do so, to stand for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to look at Matthew 6, 9 to 13. I'm going to read from the NASB this morning, which is found on the back of your bulletins. Give ear to God's Word. It says, Pray then, Jesus says, Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. This is the end of reading of God's word. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but what does it say? The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to bless his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord's prayer and all that it teaches us, that your son has taught us and how to pray. And we ask once again that you would teach us by your spirit, that you would work in our hearts by your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Help us work in us that we might be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're looking at uh, what is often called the doxology uh, of the Lord's Prayer. And it's found in uh, verse 13 of, uh, of many translations. It's not found... In the ESV, it'll be in a footnote probably in your ESV, and this is what the King James, uh, the King James text of verse 13 or the end of verse 13 says. This is the version we always think of when you pray it every first Sunday. Uh, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, if you've been coming here for any length of time and maybe you grew up in a church that prayed the Lord's Prayer, many don't in our day, uh, you've probably had this as part of the Lord's Prayer in your mind uh, every single time uh, that you have prayed it and thought about it. Maybe you've wondered why it's not in the ESV or why it's not in, in every translation. Have you ever thought, before we get to that point, have you ever stopped to think about what these words mean? Why Why is this a fitting conclusion to the Lord's Prayer? What What are we saying and why are we saying it, besides the fact that it's there, when we, when we pray and say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? Amen. What does it mean? Here's a question maybe you've never thought of. What does it mean to say amen? 
Sometimes I think we think of it like the punctuation at the end of the sentence. So you're just supposed to say amen at the end of prayer, so that's what we do. You know, this is what people often say. This is just the way we do things. We just say amen at the end of prayers and, and don't give it much thought. Well, what, what is our Lord Jesus teaching us about prayer and about our, our, our God and our Heavenly Father when he concludes this great model prayer with these words? Because he's te- teaching us something about prayer in these words and he's teaching us something about God with these words. Now, I've already mentioned that some translations uh, treat this differently. Some translations include it, such as the King James, the New King James. Uh, they include this closing doxology in Matthew's Gospel. Others omit it entirely, such as the ESV. If you look at your ESV, there's probably a footnote somewhere at the bottom of the page saying, you know, some early manuscripts do not include this part of the verse. Uh, others, like the one in our bulletin, New American Standard, they include it, but they place it in brackets or put a note somewhere on the page saying that some early manuscripts don't include this part, this doxology of the Lord's Prayer. So what are we to make of that question? What are we to make of this issue, this textual question, that many have found to be so difficult? And on top of that, having settled that, what what are you and I to learn from the doxology that we commonly pray at the end of the Lord's Prayer? Those are those are just a couple things that I hope that we'll spend some time this morning and be able to uh, to learn something about. So the first thing, probably the first thing we have to get out of the way before we go on to the text itself, the, the part of the prayer, is the textual question itself. Now, I have to be honest, this is one of those things that when I first think about it, I think this is, uh, you, know, you know, the old phrase, this is above my pay grade, so to speak. This feels above my pay grade, but it's one of those things at the same time that I don't think it's right to skip over it. It would be, uh, personally, it would be much easier to not address it, to just duck it all together and, and go right on and pretend it's not an issue or not a question. But I think that there's something as Christians that we must be sure of, and that's you should never be afraid that the Word of God is going to somehow fail uh, to stand the test of examination. You should have confidence in the Word of God that the Word of God is inspired, it is inerrant, it is infallible, it is authoritative for all things regarding faith and practice, it is sufficient for life and godliness for all things for the Christian. And so that being the case, we should not be worried that somehow it's going to fail to stand up under scrutiny. I think sometimes that's our our unspoken assumptions. We say, well, I know there's problems and there's questions and maybe if we, you know, what do we do with problems in our day? We, we stick our head in the sand. We say, if, you know, if I ignore it, maybe it'll go away. Uh, well, it's not going to go away. And I think as Christians who believe in the scriptures as we should, uh, we shouldn't fail to address these things when they come up. And so I, th- I thought it would be edifying and helpful to, to address this even from the pulpit, that we would learn how to deal with questions like this in some way. So if we ever come to a point where either we're wrestling with it ourselves, or maybe you've looked at these issues in the past and have but wondered what 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 are you to think about them, or maybe you have friends who are skeptics, who are you know people that that are always trying to find reasons to not believe, and maybe they've they've approached you and said, hey, you're a Christian, and what about this, and what about that in your Bible? Uh, what do you say? What should you say uh, in such in such a case? Now, as you've already seen, some translations such as the ESV that I use every Sunday, do not include it, put it as a footnote. Uh, Others 
put a footnote saying, you know, they include it, but they put a footnote saying some manuscripts don't include it. Well, why, why is that? What is the reason for all these differences in our translations regarding this text and others? This is going to be, if I can use the phrase, uh, everybody's old enough to know what the Reader's Digest was. The Reader's Digest kind of uh, abbreviates things. Well, this is going to be the Reader's Digest version. Uh, we don't want a sermon to be an academic lecture, but a little bit of learning is not going to hurt anyone. So I'm going to try to sum up the reason behind some of these uh, arguments and disagreements in some, uh, in a brief fashion at least, and I hope you'll find it at least helpful in some small way. But uh, around the end of the 19th century, so the 1890s or so, uh, some very important New Testament manuscripts were discovered, and some of these manuscripts were deemed to be the oldest, and therefore the you know represented the closest thing we had time-wise to the original manuscripts that we uh, of or the autographs is what they call them of Scripture. In other words, you know what you want to do when you're trying to decide and determine or, or discern. What did Paul, for instance, actually write in Romans? What did Mark actually write in Mark? What did Matthew write in Matthew? What you want, the scripture is, what did they actually write? And so you want to try to determine, this is what the goal is of, of uh, these things, uh, what was the closest, the oldest manuscripts, what is the one that represents most faithfully what was actually written? That's, that's always been the goal. Uh, whether it be from ancient times or from more modern times. Well, there were some textual critics, uh, not only these men named Westcott and Hort, but they're the two most prominent names you'll hear. Uh, what they did was they took these oldest, what were deemed to be the oldest manuscripts, and they decided or determined uh, that these were the oldest, and so they gave them priority over all the other manuscript uh, evidences. Now, this textual tradition obviously had some notable difference in places, uh, such things as the ending of Mark. You know, when we preached the Gospel of Mark, we addressed that then. Uh, and the Lord's Prayer is also one of those examples of of differences. The, the text of Matthew's Gospel, in, in what had been used as the text for years and years and years before, always included that doxology until around the end of the 19th Century. So prior to the 19th century, to the late 19th century, pretty much every translation of the New Testament included this doxology of the Lord's Prayer. Now, it's not found in every manuscript, but it is found in most of them. And it is found in some of the oldest ones. So sometimes people overstate arguments on both sides. They'll say, well, the, old, the oldest ones don't have it. That's not really true. Some of the ones that they think are most important of the oldest ones don't have it but many of the oldest ones do. The King James Bible uh, obviously includes the doxology. Interestingly, the, the Latin Vulgate, on which the Roman Catholic Bible was based, uh, does not include it. And that was written in the, in the 4th century. So uh, we, it would be easy to blame this entire debate on Westcott and Hort, but that would not be accurate. Uh, there are other, other reasons uh, for questioning it or wondering what the deal is with it. John Calvin, who obviously wrote before the 19th century by a good bit, he writes this about this issue. He says, all these petitions, after all these petitions in the Lord's Prayer, the reason why we are able to be so bold in asking and so confident in receiving. So when he says the reason, he's talking about the doxology. The doxology gives the reason that we are able to be so bold in asking 
and so confident in receiving. So when he says the reason, he's referring to the doxology. He says the reason is not expressed in the Latin versions, such as the Vulgate, but suits this passage so well that it ought not to be omitted. According to Calvin, when you read it, it fits so perfectly, it's hard to imagine it without it. It would seem as if something were missing to not include it. Now, in that quote, which we'll unpack in a little bit, he's not just interpreting the meaning of, of the phrase, he's giving us his rationale, his reason, uh, why it belongs in the text, even if in short order. He says that it fits so well with the Lord's Prayer that, quote, it ought not to be omitted. It certainly does fit the Lord's Prayer. It's hard, not just from habit. I, I imagine if you've prayed it your whole life, you, you couldn't think of it without it because of that reason, but it also fits the Lord's Prayer very well. Another argument I think that is sometimes neglected is sometimes called the majesty of history. I think the majesty of history, the, the vast majority of church history until the last couple hundred years, would weigh very heavily in, the fa- in favor of including the Lord's Prayer. I think it has a strong case to argue for its inclusion here in Matthew's Gospel. Now, Luke's Gospel, you might know, does not include the doxology. In fact, Luke's text of it is a little bit different. Now, why is that? This is what the, the text of Luke 11, verses 2 to 4 says. He, Jesus, said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, if you notice, that sounds rather different, doesn't it? Well, did Jesus teach the Lord's Prayer more than once? Yes, he did. Not just the fact that it's in two different Gospels. Everything about that reads a little bit different. In Matthew's text, he tells the disciples, when you pray, or after this manner, pray like this. In Luke's text, he says, when you pray, say this. Two different ways of putting it, uh, and two different ways of, of even telling us how to use it. And so Jesus Christ taught the Lord's Prayer at least twice, if not more, twice in Scripture, and it was not a verbatim repetition both times. And so we have to conclude in some way that the doxology at the end uh, in Matthew's Gospel is in some way not necessarily essential to the Lord's Prayer itself, or else he would have had to have included it both times. But he does include it in Matthew's Gospel. It fits the prayer, the Lord's Prayer to a T, and I think there's much benefit to us in learning it and in praying the Lord's Prayer, including it. Now add to that the fact that everything in the doxology, and here maybe is the most important argument, everything in this doxology of the Lord's Prayer whether or not you are sure it is scripture, everything in it is scriptural. Now, what do I mean by that? Everything in it is according to the rest of scripture. It is in agreement with the rest of scripture. All the things taught in this doxology are taught and found elsewhere in the word of God. And so we can rest assured that including it will in no way lead us astray in our prayers, but will prove edifying and helpful to us in many ways. No. There's no, there's no single text of Scripture uh, that has any of these questions attached to it on which any doctrine depends and stands or falls. And so I would say, at the very least, the doxology is scriptural. Uh, I tend to believe it is Scripture on top of that. 
And I think for these reasons, I would have personally have much preferred that the scholars behind the ESV would have included it in the text and at the very least put a footnote at the bottom saying there are some manuscripts that don't include it. But I think the way that it's written here kind of prejudices the reader against its inclusion unnecessarily. I think we should, I think we have good reason to have confidence that it belongs in the text and certainly we shouldn't have a problem including it when we pray. I think if it didn't belong in the text, we shouldn't be praying it at the end of our prayers. I think we should base all things on the Word of God. Now, not only did Calvin and many others in the past view this doxology as belonging with the original text of Matthew's Gospel, but also, not surprisingly, you might know that both the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism explicitly included in their catechism's treatment of the Lord's Prayer. In fact, both catechisms close with this doxology and the word Amen. The last, the very last questions in both of those great Reformed catechisms close dealing with our subject matter this morning in the, the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. So, uh, in fact, question 107 gives us a pretty good understanding of what, what this means when we pray it. Question 107, the last question of the Shorter Catechism, says this, What does the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? You never thought about the Lord's Prayer teaching us, but the conclu- what does it teach us? Answer, it says, The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, teaches us to take our encouragement in prayer from God only, and in our prayers to praise him, ascribing kingdom and power and glory to him, and in testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard, we say amen. So the Shorter Catechism gives us basically three things that you and I are to learn from this doxology and the word amen at the end of the Lord's Prayer. And the first of those three things is that we are to, quote, take our encouragement in prayer from God only. That's what, remember the scripture reading this morning from Genesis 32? That is what Jacob did. Jacob didn't wrestle with God in prayer before he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. He didn't, what he didn't do was say, Lord, you know I've done X, Y, and Z. You know I'm a good guy. You know all these things. He said, you said this. You promised this to me, to my father Abraham, to my father Isaac. That's why he, that's the way he argued with God. All of his reasons for confidence were found in God himself and not in Jacob. And this, this doxology in the Lord's Prayer teaches us the same thing. We are to take our encouragement in prayer from God only. This is a rhetorical question, but are you ever discouraged in prayer? Have you ever prayed for something, maybe for years and years and years, to the point where you wondered, Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Is God mad at me? Does God just not want to hear me and answer? Am I asking for the wrong thing? I would assume maybe every single one of us in this room has has had that or maybe still has that be the case currently in your prayers. If that's been the case, if you've ever been discouraged in prayer, let the doxology of the Lord's Prayer remind you once again to take your encouragement in prayer from God only. Remember Calvin in that quote I read earlier said that this doxology gives us, quote, the reason why we are able to be bold in our asking of things from God and his throne of grace. He calls it the reason why we, why we can have boldness. Now, why does he say that? Why does Calvin call it the reason? Well, what's the first word in the doxology? Three letters. For. For 
Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. It's like the word because. He asked, you ask these six petitions of the Lord that Jesus shows us to ask in all these things that we're supposed to ask for. And then he says, the reason why, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So Calvin is just using the text to explain itself. In other words, it's because we pray to God and our Heavenly Father, whose kingdom is over all and whose power is infinite and whose glory outshines all others. It's because of that that we can and should pray with confidence that he is both willing and able to answer all the requests that we are taught to pray for in this great pattern prayer. Jesus gives us the requests, and he also gives us the reason that we can have confidence in praying these requests, as if the fact that Jesus taught them wasn't enough to give us confidence. In many ways, this is really the same lesson we learned in the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. If you think about it, what does Jesus tell us to address God as? Our Father in heaven, or our Father who art in heaven. And we saw when we looked at that, that that's meant to fill us with a holy confidence in prayer. It's meant to teach us that God is is willing and able to hear and answer us. That is what the doxology of the Lord's Prayer is also intended to fill us with that same holy confidence and boldness in prayer. A.W. Pink writes, In this pattern prayer, God has made both the Alpha and the Omega. It opens by addressing Him as our Father in heaven. It ends by lauding Him as the glorious King of the universe. So what he's saying really is, if this, this doxology of the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer here comes full circle. It begins with God's glory and it ends with God's glory. When you and I pray as believers in Christ, we are praying and we need to remind ourselves that we are praying not just to our Heavenly Father, but also to the one to whom alone belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. What does that mean? Well, it means nothing shall be impossible with God. And because He's our Heavenly Father, and and as our Heavenly Father, He is the one who owns or to whom belongs kingdom and power and glory, he is both willing and able to do all things and answer us in everything that we pray according to his will. There's nothing he can't do, and there's nothing he's not willing to do that's for our good and for his glory. But what's the second thing that this doxology of the Lord's Prayer is supposed to teach us? And the Catechism says it's it's to teach us that we are to remember to praise God in our praying. We should have confidence in God only in our prayers, and we should remember to praise God in our praying. Do you often praise God when you pray? Do you remember to praise the Lord in many ways when we pray? Do we do that when we pray together? We should. It's, you know, it, it's one of the reasons why we have as one of our pastoral prayers in the service a prayer of what? Adoration and confession. We start, we start with praise. Even the first request of the Lord's Prayer teaches us this, isn't it? Let, we, let your name, hallowed be your name. Let your name be hallowed or set apart as holy. I think this is probably the one aspect of prayer that is easiest to neglect. I think sometimes, you know, when you have the, the, the burden of guilt, it's not hard to remember to confess your sins and to receive his forgiveness. I think it's even not so hard to remember to thank God. It certainly isn't hard to ask Him for things and to make our requests known, but do we remember to praise God when we pray? 
Psalm 33.1 says, Praise befits the upright. So the psalmist says we should praise God because it's fitting. It's the most reasonable thing for us to do. We should remember to praise God in our prayers because when, we, when you praise God in your prayers, what do you do? You remind yourself, you remind yourself of just who it is that you're praying to in the first place. You remind yourself of God's perfections and His goodness. Think of the encouragement that would be to you in prayer, to remember to praise God when you pray. Praising God in prayer, just like praising God when we sing, it's a lot more practical than you might think. There's a reason God has, there's multiple reasons that God has us do it, but one of the reasons for that, that God has us do that is it, it encourages us in prayer. When you praise God, you're thinking more rightly of who He is and how willing He is and able He is to hear and to answer. The last thing, last but not least, the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer here in the doxology teaches us The Catechism says, to testify to our desire and assurance to be heard by God in prayers by adding that word, Amen. The the word Amen has the idea of, you know, let it be so, uh, may it be so. Uh, The better we conform our praying to the Lord's prayer and the Lord's will in prayer as expressed in this model prayer, the more easily you'll be able to add your Amen to it. Now, we're told there that the word amen at the end of our prayers is both to express our desire to be heard as well as our confidence that we will be heard by him, by his grace in Christ. And I wanted to mention the very last question of the Heidelberg Catechism, question 129. I was reading this, and it struck me what it says. Question 129 says, what does that little word amen express? What does that little word amen express? Amen means, uh, this shall truly and surely be. Why? For it is, it is much more certain that God has heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire such things from Him. I'll read that part again. For it is much more certain that God has heard my prayer even than that I feel in my heart that I desire such things from Him. You see what the, what, what your sinus is saying here in the, in, the, in the catechism. When you pray, you sincerely want those things you're praying for. Have you ever prayed for something you didn't want? I don't think I have. Now you might pray for God's will, and you might not be sure that God's will is the same as your will. Have you ever prayed, especially repeatedly, for something you didn't actually desire? I'm going to guess the answer to that question is an emphatic no. Well, again, assuming you're praying according to God's will, according to the Heidelberg Catechism, the word amen means you're even more sure, or you should be even more sure that God heard and is willing to answer than you even are that you want to be answered and heard. That's what amen means. Amen, in a sense, is it's an expression of trust that God means good for you that he is more willing to hear an answer than you even are to pray. I don't know about you, but if I didn't believe that at least enough, I would never pray. God is more willing to hear and answer your prayers than you are even to pray. I said this before, and I hope you take it in the way that it's intended. God is better than you. That's what amen, that's what the amen is teaching. He's better than me. He's better than you. He means better for you than you do. 
And we should have confidence in that when we pray. That's what our amen should mean at the end of the Lord's Prayer and at the end of our prayers. Do you, do you sincerely desire the things that you pray for? Do you desire and pray for the glory of God's name? Do you desire and pray for the coming of God's kingdom and the building of his church? Do you pray sincerely for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Do you sincerely pray for your daily bread, for the forgiveness of your trespasses, and for help in avoiding temptation and from giving in to sin? Do you desire and pray for the salvation of of loved ones and family members and neighbors? I'm sure that you do. Do you pray for revival in our country, that God would turn our land from wickedness and turn back to him through faith in Christ? If you're a believer in Christ, I'm, I'm sure you pray for all those things in one way or another probably many, many times. Well, if that's the case, be encouraged by that little word, amen. Be encouraged by the whole doxology of the Lord's Prayer, for as the Heidelberg Catechism says, that word amen teaches you that it's much more certain that God has heard and is going to answer, even than it is that you actually desire those things that you pray for. And why is that? For his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, we find so many reasons for doubt that you will hear and answer our prayers. We often pray and don't even bother looking for the answers. Lord, I confess that I do that many times, that we're we're like those people in uh, in Jerusalem when Peter was in prison uh, and he got let out by your angel through a miraculous means and, and he's knocking at the door and they they're so sure that he's dead that they say it's probably his angel. And they don't even open the door when when you've already answered. Lord, uh, we believe help our unbelief. Help us to be people who pray. Make this church a, a house of prayer for all the nations, for your glory. Teach us to pray. Teach us to have confidence, not in ourselves. Lord, forgive us for trying to find confidence in ourselves, for our self righteousness, for thinking that we can earn your answers or manipulate you in some way. Uh, Teach us to pray and teach us to seek and to find our confidence in you alone in our prayers, that we might have confidence that you are more willing and able to hear and answer than we even are to pray. Lord, we do pray for the salvation of many of our loved ones, our neighbors and friends. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would build and sustain and establish this church, that you would glorify your name in, in in the salvation of sinners here in our town. Lord, on our own, we, we doubt these things, but we know that you desire these things more than we ever could. So we do pray that you would teach us to pray, teach us to pray according to the prayer your Son taught us. Help us to seek first and foremost the glory of your name, that your name might be hallowed. Help us to pray for the coming of your kingdom, the building up of your church. Help us to pray that your will might be done in our lives and in everyone's lives as, as it's done in heaven uh, help us to, to pray even for our daily bread and the forgiveness of our sins in this way that we are so sure that you hear and answer, that you hear and answer and are willing to do so even more than we are willing to pray. Lord, uh, we believe, help our unbelief. We pray that you would make us a people of prayer. And we do pray that, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that does not yet know you, that you would open their eyes, that they would look to Christ and have salvation through faith in him alone that they might become a person of prayer as well and have confidence not in themselves, but confidence in you, in your goodness, your power, your willingness to hear and answer. We thank you that we can call upon you, the Almighty God of all the universe, and call upon you as our Heavenly Father. And if we can call on you as our Father, 
Uh, we should know how much you love us and be assured of it. Thank you for these things. Thank you for the Lord's Prayer. And thank you for your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.